And if you would please take your uh, copy of God's Word and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is where we are this morning. As some of you know, some of you who were kind enough to uh, come to my house and help me with various projects that went on this week, um, plumbing issues, toilet issues, sink issues, fun, just fun. It's been a joyous week. This week for me has been a record number of times going to Lowe's. Um, I went seven times in four days, so that's a record for me, and I'm sure it's just going to keep getting higher from, from here on out. But it's interesting, as I was going to Lowe's over and over and over again, all of their plastic bags say the same thing, a slogan. And it says this, never stop improving. Never stop improving. Now, we all know what that means to Lowe's. Never stop improving means um, always keep on fixing things in your house and always keep on changing things in your house and never be satisfied with your house. And there's a part of that that I really don't like. Just be discontent constantly, always um, uh, look at things that need fixing or need changing. You're always unsatisfied with the state of your home. Obviously, we don't like that, right? God says we must be content in all things. But as I was studying these verses, I realized that that is really uh, the goal of these verses, spiritually speaking. Paul's slogan, if you will, in these verses could very well be never stop improving. Constantly keep growing spiritually. Constantly keep growing and never stop improving. In a phrase, we could say there is wrong discontentment and there is also such a thing as holy discontentment. If you're dissatisfied with the way things are in your life spiritually, your godliness is not where you want it to be. Never stop improving. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons why we have to answer that question biblically. There's a number of questions that arise out of hearing that phrase. Don't stop growing. Don't stop improving. Don't stop striving. Um, there are questions that would arise out of that. That you would hear, okay, wait, do I have to work during salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Questions. And some of those we will answer today from God's Word. Some of those we won't have time to. But there is one thing that we can know without a shadow of a doubt. It is this. No one ever stumbles into godliness. Ever. It simply does not happen that way. There is no autopilot mode for the Christian life. We never see people in the Bible growing in godliness by simply coasting along. You can't just coast into godliness. I'll give you two illustrations of this. We are all on spiritual escalators, as it were. Unfortunately, these spiritual escalators are always going down. If you're trying, as my daughter does sometimes in the mall, Marty, is this just messing up? There. It's still fuzzing. Marty will fix it because Marty's amazing. Thank you, Marty. As my daughter likes to do in the mall by walking up the down escalator, um, we wait until we see that there's no crowd and, hey, we can run up. If she's not running up, she's never going to make it to the top because the escalator's always moving down. Same thing spiritually with all of us. We are on an escalator that is always moving down. And if we do not run, if we do not pursue moving up, we will be brought down. You cannot stand still in the Christian life and a hope and attempt 
to be moving forward in godliness. Or, to use another analogy by John Piper, he says this, Do you coast? What happens if you're coasting in a tumultuous river that's heading for a waterfall? What happens? You're going to go off the waterfall and die. And he says it this way, and I think these are wise words, carefully chosen words, words that we need to hear with sensitivity. He says, Brothers and sisters, the current of sin and of our culture will damn you if you do not swim. It will. If you do not swim against the current of sin and society and our culture, you will be thrown off of the edge, off of the waterfall. Now we say, wait, 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 hang on. We're justified by faith alone, by grace alone. It's not by works, right? So we've been studying for the last month or so. And I would just say simply the evidence that you are justified is that you swim. The evidence that you are justified is that you continue to swim and to strive and to press on. You never press on or strive because you are trying to earn salvation. You press on and you strive because you have already attained it because of Jesus Christ alone. We are not passive. We press on. This isn't passive living. This isn't lazy living. Do you wake up in the morning and say, I am after something, I have a goal, I have a desire, and I'm after something. Or do you wake up in the morning saying, I'm justified, I don't need to do anything, I'm fine. If you are a coaster, indifferent to holiness, indifferent to more of Jesus, and you just simply have a card in your back pocket that says, get out of hell free, then I believe the Bible would very clearly say, you need to check whether or not you're really saved. Because true salvation, true justification produces in you a desire for more of Jesus. It has to. We studied this last week. You remember in chapter 3, verses 9, if you go to verse 9, all Paul wanted was to be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of his own. That is justification. Not my righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. And it's a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, not on the result of my works. It comes on the basis of faith. But justification by faith alone is never alone. John Calvin's words to us last week, they always produce in us something. What does it produce? Verse 10. Number one, we saw last week, a desire to know Christ. He wants to know him. That I may know him. Because I am justified, now I can know Jesus Christ. And I want to press on to know him more. Number two, we looked last week, we want to desire to be like him. We want to grow in Christ's likeness, that I would know him and that I would know the power of his resurrection, middle of verse 10. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He wants power. He wants power that would fight against sin, that would fight for holiness in his life. He says, this is what I want. And ultimately, verse 11, we saw number three last week. We will desire, if we are justified, to be with Christ. We want to know him, we want to be like him, and we want to be with him. Now, if any of you walked away from last week saying, oh man, I struggle with some of those things. I struggle with the desire to know. I struggle with the desire to um, be like him. There are days where it's working out. There are days where it's not. There are moments in my day that I, I feel like I really want to desire to know him more, and I'm pressing into knowing him more. There are days where it's just not working. Paul's next words to us that we're going to see in verses 12 through 16 are an encouragement 
and an exhortation. The encouragement is found in verse 12 right off the bat. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. If you would say, you know what, I struggle to love Jesus the way I ought to. I want to press in to know him more, but I struggle with that. Guess what Paul does too? He says, I haven't obtained perfection. I haven't perfectly come to the understanding of knowing Jesus Christ in perfection. I don't perfectly desire to be like him and I don't look like him presently. I don't always desire to be with him. I struggle with that. Paul would say the exact same thing. So be encouraged. But he won't just say, I'm struggling, so we're all struggling, so it's okay. Forget about it. He's going to say there are things we need to do. Let's read it together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. Not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Just one question this morning. One question, one point with a couple different subpoints as we work through this text. The question that I have is, what is Paul's main goal? What's his ambition in life? What's the goal of his life? What's the mission statement of his life? What is he doing? He has come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Now what? What does he live for? What is his hope? What are his desires? It's answered for us by the use of this word, press on, these words, press on. Verse 12, I press on. Verse 13, I haven't completely laid hold of it yet, so I forget what lies behind. I reach forward to what lies ahead. And verse 14, I press on. That's really what he says in verse 13. One thing I do, and the main verb is I press on, forgetting and reaching our participles, modifying that main verb. He just says, I press on, I press on, I press on, I press on. That's it. So very simply, what is Paul's goal in life? What does he do when he wakes up in the morning? What is he thinking about? What is he trying to attain? What is he trying to work towards? And you can answer it in two words, pressing on, pressing on. That's all he wants. He wants to press on. Now, to what or where he's going We'll look at as we work through verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it. The it there, my Bible has it in italics. It's supplied there because it's not there in the original Greek. Not that I've already obtained. I haven't already obtained. I haven't already grasped around what. That's why the Bible, my Bible says it. That's why the Bible translators of the New American Standard says it. Not that I've already obtained it. What's the it? What is the obtaining? What's the goal that he's striving for? Well, it's what we saw in verses 10 and 11. Knowing Jesus, verse 10, fully. Understanding the power of his resurrection in conquering sin and defeating it in his own life. The fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. I haven't already obtained these things, and I certainly have not attained to the resurrection from the dead. I certainly am not home to be with Jesus. I have work left to do here. 
Similar words are echoed in Romans chapter 7. You remember in Romans 7, Paul says, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. I can't figure this out. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me? Because I cannot save myself. I need help. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, he says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God, because there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps some were saying, in Philippi, you can be perfect. There are religions that would say that even today. If you, even in the umbrella of evangelicalism, there are people that say, if you are truly saved, you will never sin again. And if you sin again, then you weren't truly saved and you have to be saved again. I had a friend who went to a church that preached that. He said he was baptized 13 times and he walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, got saved 28 times. It's like, why 13, 28? But the Bible preaches that there is assurance of salvation. And the Bible preaches that once you are saved, you still struggle with sin. We are all still sinners struggling with sin. But if we don't fight against sin and we say, I don't care, I'm struggling, it doesn't matter, and we don't fight, that's where we find ourselves in the predicament, in the danger of coasting, and coasting leads to death. Paul says, all I want is Jesus, and I don't have him yet. Not that I've already obtained. I haven't obtained Jesus. I haven't obtained knowing him fully. I haven't obtained uh, fellowshipping with him fully or being with him. But, he says, I press on. I haven't become perfect. I haven't become, that word there is completed. But I press on. I press on. That word press on, in the Greek, it really means um, striving after a goal, fighting after a goal, trying to uh, attain something. It was used in running a race that the runner had his eyes on the prize and he would press on to that prize. It was also used in hunting. A hunter has a goal, has a prize, has an animal that he is shooting for, and he will press on until he has his arrow hit the mark. You see this word in your Bible, uh, these, these two words, press on, in verse 12, I press on, and then in verse 14, I press on. But it's actually used a third time in Philippians chapter 3, back in verse 6. In one of my classes, we're studying through the book of Philippians, and I had them look throughout the entire chapter of chapter 3 to find the third use of this Greek word for press on. And it took about 30 minutes, and they could not find it anywhere. So I narrowed it down for them, narrowed it down, narrowed it down. Verse 6, as to zeal, Paul was a presser honor of the church. Literally, persecutor is the exact same identical word in verse 12 and 14, press on. Press on. He had one goal. He had one purpose. He had one passion and everything else couldn't matter at all to him. All he cared about was pressing on. That's all he wanted. Why does he press on? He says, I haven't obtained Jesus. I haven't gained fully a fellowship with him. And I haven't already become perfect or completed or sinless. But I don't wallow in that. I don't wallow in self-pity. I don't just say, well, I'll give up because I'm struggling. He says, but I press on. Why? So that in order that I may lay hold of that 
for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Please note, Paul is not aspiring here to get right with God. He is aspiring because he is right with God. We are to strive to seize Christ's likeness because that's the very reason he seized us. This is not a question of whether or not you can lose your salvation. We were laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Therefore, if he holds you in his hand, he will never let you go. And John, he says, I'm the good shepherd and the father gives me the sheep and I have not lost one of them and he never will. So this isn't, I have to strive or else I will lose salvation. Please note, it's not, I need to strive or else I will lose the salvation that I have been given by Jesus Christ. What is it? I want to strive, I want to press on, I want to attain, laying hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Why did Christ lay hold of us? We'll turn to Romans chapter 8. Why did Jesus seize us? Why did he grab us? Why did he call us out of sin? As we sang earlier, we were blinded by our sin. We had no ear to hear the voice of God. And then his spirit gave us life, opened up our ears, opened up his word. Why did Jesus save us? What is the purpose of him laying hold of us? That We could answer that in a myriad of ways. But Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Why did he foreknow you? Why did he predestine you? Why did he save you so that you would be conformed into the image of his son? So when Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, I press on to lay hold of that, he's saying I'm pressing on to lay hold of Christ's likeness, being like my Savior thinking the way he thinks, feeling the way he thinks, loving the way he loved. We lay hold of Christ's likeness, and in doing so, we lay hold of Christ himself. Again, verse 13, he says, No, I am not perfect. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. If anybody would say, well, Paul is perfect, he probably already laid hold of it, and he already has perfection, Christ's likeness, godliness, and he never struggles with sin ever No. You can hear him pleading, brothers and sisters, brethren is inclusive of brothers and sisters, my friends, my family, I have not attained it. And just as he said in verse 12, I haven't obtained it, but I press on. So he says in verse 13, I haven't obtained it, I haven't laid hold of it, but one thing I do. But one thing I do is in italics again. Supplied for us by the New American Standard translators. So literally, Paul says, I have not laid hold of this yet, but one thing. Pressing on. One thing, I press on. One thing. That's all I have in mind. That's all that's in my focus. One thing. And that's pressing on. He starts with the participles, but one thing. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. So literally you could say, but one thing, I press on by forgetting what lies behind and by reaching forward to what lies ahead. What is Paul's main goal in life? What is he trying to do? What's the mission statement of his life here? Press on to Christ's likeness. Now we say, okay, how? How do you do that, Paul? If that's your main goal, if the what is... 
Christ-likeness, attaining to Christ-likeness, pressing on to Christ-likeness. If that's the what, what is your main goal? What is your purpose? Christ-likeness. Now the question is, how do you get there? So how do you do it, Paul? I think Paul would give us two very clear points in the text. Number one, forgetting. Forgetting what lies behind. How do you press on? This is the way you press on. This is the participle that modifies the main verb, press on, in verse 14. So you press on by forgetting. You forget. The word in the Greek means to neglect and care nothing about. This is uh, in, in a race, as Paul's saying, I press on to run this race and fix my eyes on the prize. This is a runner not looking back. This is a runner refusing to turn his head or to see who's behind him. And he stares only at the prize and never looks back. We need to forget neglect everything behind us and care nothing about it. But what are we to forget? Can we practically talk about what we are to be forgetting in order to press on? You can categorize it in two things, good things and bad things. Forget good things, forget bad things. The things behind, literally, is what Paul says. Forgetting what lies behind. The part of the race that's already been completed, both with its successes and its failures. We're pressing on forgetting what lies behind. The question is, do you allow anything from the past to distract your gaze from the finish line? Do you allow anything in the past to make you stumble or to make you falter as you're running in the race? One pastor says it this way, the victory of yesterday was given to you by the grace of yesterday. Today comes with a grace of its own. God's mercies are new every morning like manna delivered to you just in time. Yesterday's grace is inadequate in the face of today's struggles. We need to forget the successes of the past. Uh, people in, old, in their older age and older years tend to look at the glory years, right? Oh, the good old days. Oh, back in the good old days. We tend to do that spiritually speaking. Oh, back at the time that I was at that summer camp and was totally on fire for the Lord. Now I'm Oh, if only I could get the good old days. Looking behind. Successes are good, really, for only one purpose. To see that God's faithful and can get you through. Remember his faithfulness and keep running. Stop looking to the past successes because they will slow you down. It's as if you have one hand backwards saying, Oh, I wish I could hang on to that because that was so wonderful. Turn your body forward, press on, and never look back. But don't just forget what lies behind as far as good successes, good things, spiritual victories. You also have to forget the bad things, the past sins, the past failures. Can I be honest and say that I think if we struggle with this, and we do, many of us struggle with, can God forgive me? What about what happened in the past? Uh, how could I have ever done that? And can God really love me? I mean, I understand the whole Jesus thing and the cross and forgiveness, but does he really want a right relationship with me? And can he even use me now? Some people would say, oh, sure, God can save Paul. He can turn a murderer into a minister. Oh, he can deliver Peter, a betrayer, into a best friend. He can make all things new, the Bible says, but not me. Somehow we believe we are grace's kryptonite. Nope. Grace doesn't work on me. That's just a form of pride. Can we be honest? That's a form of pride. To say somehow my sin is bigger and more overwhelming than the grace of God. We need to forget 
the good things, the successes, but we also need to realize that the sin that we have in the past, if we have come to Jesus Christ, has been forgiven. Let the burden in Pilgrim's Progress, that burden of sin on his back, let it fall off. You are a new creature, a new creation. And live as one. I had a a really good friend who was desiring to be a missionary. And uh, he kept on asking me, Patrick, do you think I shouldn't be a missionary? Do you think I should go overseas be a missionary? And one of the things that he constantly brought up was, I don't know if I should because of these things that I've done. And he would tell me of past sins, and I would say, none of us are different. You don't think God can use you? Praise the Lord. He's overseas. Uh, God gripped his heart. I actually think he might have gotten saved after these conversations because he didn't understand salvation and justification. Forget the good things. Forget the bad things and press on. Move forward. doesn't mean we can't learn from the past, but as we will see when we study through the Psalms, there's an amazing Psalm that talks about letting guilt do its job. We're going to study the Psalms over the summer and one of these Psalms says, let guilt do its job. Let it push you and drive you to God, push you to the cross and then throw it away. Don't let guilt hang on to you and stay with you. Throw it away. Let it push you to the cross and then throw it away. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind both the good things and the bad things. Can I give you my favorite example of of people in the Bible that did not forget what lies behind? And no, it's not um, Lot's wife turning into salt, although that's a good one, turning, looking over her shoulder. But that's too easy. Can't go there. We've got to go somewhere else. It's in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, verses 5 to 6. You can just write it down and look it up on your own time. This is a perfect illustration of, number one, looking back, and number two, what happens when you look back when you're supposed to be running forward. The Israelites have been brought out of Egypt. They have been supplied food in quail and manna. They've had water come out of a rock. God is providing for every single need they have, and they are starting to be fed up with it. And they say this, we remember the fish that we ate in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, all at which we had at no cost, all of which we had at no cost. Not only are they not forgetting what lies behind, but as they remember the past, as they're straining backwards to remember the past, they're remembering it incorrectly. Because they're saying, we, we just got free food all day long. Yeah, but you were slaves. Forgot something. There's a little something there you forgot. It's not free. You were slaves. And because they're staring backwards and they're looking at the past, they say, now we have lost our appetite for all we eat is manna. That's all we eat now. We've lost our appetite. Who cares about this manna? We're done. If you do not forget what lies behind, and I know that that is easier said than done because I know that there are painful memories in the past. But if you, if you do not forget what lies behind, you will never be able to do the next participle of reaching forward. You will always be held back and you will be slow in your running. You will be slow in your maturity. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Secondly, how do we press on? How do we strive and labor toward the goal of Christ-likeness and maturity in Jesus? First, we forget what lies behind and second, we reach forward. Literally, it's we strain Forward. And both of these words, forgetting and reaching, are in the present tense. They're continually happening. You don't just forget at a one-time 
point of salvation and move on. You don't just say, okay, I'm going to strive to Christ-likeness and then move on. It's a continual reaching forward. What are we reaching for? Well, we're forgetting what lies behind, both good and bad. What are we reaching for? What lies ahead? What does lie ahead? The rest of the race. The ground that is left to cover. The souls that we are able to win through the grace of God. The maturity that we are able to have in Jesus Christ. Discipleship. There's so much that is ahead of us. But sometimes we look at ourselves, we look internally, or we look behind, and we forget the glory of the days to come. Do you dream big dreams for God? saying we can reach a thousand people if we are mobilized with the gospel. We can reach people that are on their way to hell right now and God can turn them by using the message of the gospel through our lips. We reach forward. We reach forward to what lies ahead, including many things. But ultimately, verse 14, he's going to say, I press on toward the goal. I strain forward to what lies ahead, everything that lies ahead for me, the good things, the trials that will make me more like Jesus. But ultimately, it is the goal. He's straining forward towards the goal. What is the goal? This word, or this phrase in in verse 14 is a bit clunky. It says, "I, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Sounds like the goal is the call of God. Sounds like the prize could be, this is a clunky verse. This is a New American Standard typical clunky verse. Can I tell you what it says in the Greek? It says, I press on towards the goal and gaining the prize through the upward calling of God in Jesus Christ. Meaning, I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus finally calls me to be home with himself. I'm looking forward to the day when I finally cross the tape, reach the goal, wear the prize. The word for prize here is the same word that you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, describing a wreath or a crown that was put on the victor's head. That day when we are finally home, when the race is done, when we're wearing the crown, and we see Jesus face to face, when God calls us up, whether the rapture, whether the resurrection from the dead. Oh, what a day that will be. Oh, what a day that will be. So he says, I reach forward to that. I reach forward to that. We have to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Turn there with me. I think that Paul would be helped by us looking at Hebrews chapter 12. How do we run? How are we supposed to run? What does it look like to run this race with endurance? How do we run? How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? What do we do? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, because we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, because we have so many people who have already run the race to completion and are standing in heaven, as it were, beckoning us to come, Saying, come, you can make it. We made it. The grace of God is sufficient for you. Say no to sin. Say yes to Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, because of that, let us too, let us also, along with them, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
The author of Hebrews says, let us also run. That's the main verb. And he modifies it with the participles of laying aside every encumbrance. How are we supposed to run? Paul would say we're supposed to run by forgetting what lies behind and pressing on, straining forward. The author of Hebrews would say by laying aside every encumbrance and laying aside the sin which so easily entangles us. And by fixing our eyes on Jesus. I love this passage. I love the practicality of these verses because there are two categories of things that we need to lay aside. We need to lay aside sin. Absolutely. You cannot pursue Christ-likeness when you are stuck in sin. It's not possible. But I think if you were only to say that, I think we'd become very legalistic. It's not just get rid of sin. That's a, that's a non-negotiable. We need to get rid of sin. But it's so much more than that. And this brings into view the purpose of running, the, the goal in running the race. We lay aside encumbrances. Why does he use two words? Why does, he, why does he not just say, lay aside sin and you'll run faster? He says, lay aside sin, bad things that are keeping you from running quickly towards Christ-likeness, but also lay aside encumbrances, any good thing that you've turned into a bad thing because it's slowing you down as you run. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Paul counting things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. We talked about what is it that you live for? What is it that you're pursuing? What is it that you're striving after? The author of Hebrews says we need to lay aside any good thing, even if it's not a black or white sin. It's a totally fine, acceptable, morally good thing. But if it slows you down as you run, you need to throw it away. I shared for me personally, this can be movies, this can be sports, it's not that sports are bad. But I can be, become infatuated with and, and slowed down in my running as I become emotionally attached to 20-somethings that just desperately need to take a nap. They just, they just need to stop running around and, and lie down and take a nap for a little while. What is it in your life that is an encumbrance. It's a good thing that slows you down as you run hard after Jesus Christ. What is it? What is it? The author of Hebrews says we need to lay aside sin, we need to lay aside every encumbrance, and we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. As the picture of uh, the Kentucky Derby just happened um, a little while ago, like horses with blinders on their eyes. Don't look at anything else. Don't look to anything else. Stare at one thing and one thing only. Fix your eyes on one goal, one prize. And don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. Stare at Jesus. Put blinders on. The blinders of fellowship that remind you he's worth it. And sin is not. The blinders of memorizing God's word that reminds you that you must be Pursuing holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. Put on the blinders of friends and family that will push you and encourage you. Don't look at this. Look to Jesus. Put on the blinders of reading good biographies and reading good books that will remind you this life, if you are clinging to the temporal things in this life to satisfy you, is foolish and pointless and you will be let down. 
forget what lies behind, strain forward to what lies ahead, fix your eyes on Jesus, lay aside encumbrances, don't try and run the race wearing scuba gear. You see those Olympic athletes all the time. They're just wearing next to nothing. Why? Because they need to run as fast as they possibly can. They don't want anything slowing them down. I think so many times we were putting on flippers and putting on a big old tank of oxygen. Now I'm ready to run the race in scuba gear. What is it that you might have in your life as an encumbrance, a good thing that you've turned into something that can slow you down from pursuing Jesus Christ? You need to lay it aside. Turn back over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Paul continues with a very encouraging couple of verses. He says, I press on, verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, verse 15, Therefore, let us, as many as are, my Bible says perfect, the word should be mature, as many as are mature, let us have this attitude. What's the attitude? So Paul is saying there is a mature attitude to have. And mature people, mature people in Christ have this attitude. What's the attitude? The attitude of what he just said. That I press on to know Jesus and I lay aside everything and I forget what lies behind and I press on to knowing Jesus Christ. As many as are mature will have that attitude. This is crucial for us because he's saying maturity is having an attitude of saying Jesus is the prize that I chase after. I want him and nothing else. A holy discontentment with an attitude of pressing on no matter what. He says, let let us, if you are mature in the faith, have this attitude. And if you are struggling If you say, the gospel says I don't have to work, so why can't I just be lazy and not work? It doesn't matter to strive. If I'm not pressing on, it's okay, right? If you think differently or have a different attitude, look at what he says. As many as are perfect or mature will have this attitude that we cannot rest, we cannot coast, we must press on. But if in anything you have a different attitude, if I were to write this verse, I would say, please change your attitude. Hurry up and change before it's too late. What does Paul say? God will reveal that to you also. God will will reveal that. Don't worry. I'm not the one that's going to change your view. God will change your view. Read through the Gospels. Read Jesus saying, there is a possibility of being so involved with sin that it leads you to hell. And so you must pluck out your eye or cut off your hand in order that part of your body can go to heaven and not your whole body go to hell. There are warnings. There are challenges. There are... Um, grievous statements. We even read some of them in Hebrews chapter 4 and chapter 10 this morning. Our hearts can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin if we are lazy and if we do nothing about fighting for Christ-likeness. And even though this is an extremely urgent matter, Paul says, read God's word and he'll reveal it to you. Read God's word. If you want to know if this is true, if you want to know if pressing on towards Christ-likeness is an evidence of justification. And if you aren't pressing on towards Christ's likeness, there's a a big probability that you aren't genuinely saved. If you want to know that, don't talk to me. Don't talk to Tim or Brian or Micah. Hear from God. Go to his word and he will reveal it to you also. 
However, verse 16, he lumps everybody together. So he says, there are mature people that know I've got to press on and stop living for worldly things and stop living for sinful things and stop living for things that don't matter. Have an eternal perspective. Live for that which matters. So there's mature people. There's people that struggle. Ah, I might not agree with that. I have a different attitude towards that. But then he lumps everybody together and he says, however, let us all, let us all keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. All of us have attained some standard of understanding our sin, understanding the holiness of God, understanding the cross, understanding that we are condemned because of our sin, but Jesus pays the penalty. He says, look, at the end of the day, live out what you know and continue to grow in what you don't. Continue to seek the Lord. What are the different attitudes that Paul might be referring to when he says there might be a different attitude in some of you and God will reveal it to you also? What are the different attitudes? Let me give you just two, two different attitudes. One attitude is this. You just need to rest. Don't work, don't strive, just rest. There are pastors that are huge about this. The, the real way to rest or to grow in Christ-likeness is to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And I understand that to a certain degree. But I think there are a couple of quotes that will help us in this. Number one, a pastor says this, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. In fact, if you do not have effort in growing in Christ's likeness, then you probably do not have the grace of God working in your life. It's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning God's favor. Remember, we never press on to gain Christ because we're afraid we can lose him, because we're afraid that we have to do the moral work in our lives to earn right standing before him. No, no, no. He is the one who does that work in and through us. The best commentary on Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 is Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work because God's working. You press on to lay hold of Jesus because he's already laid hold of you. So some people say, no, 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 just rest. No, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to call uh, uh, thinking about a spiritual life that just, it's grace and I don't need to work, I don't need to strive, I just get to sit back and be lazy. He called that a belief in cheap grace. That's cheap grace. That's not grace that was at such a high cost that it motivates you to run. Matt Chandler says it this way, in the end, while some of the high-minded want to pit grace against striving... And while we are not saved by our striving, and in fact we are saved from our striving, we are also saved to our striving, a striving after Jesus. So there are some that might have a different attitude that says, oh no, it's grace, I don't have to work, I don't have to fight, God will do the work and it doesn't, doesn't matter. It's not dependent on me doing anything. We studied that back in Philippians chapter 2. No, you work out because God's working in you. A second and just a final different attitude that people might have concerning effort and working and striving after Christ-likeness. Is, we could say it this way. Don't we all know we aren't good enough? Isn't this a very oppressive sermon to say you need to strive harder? Don't we, we really need, what we really need is just 
more self-esteem. We already feel bad enough about ourselves. Why feel worse? And I think John Piper is extremely helpful in this matter, so I'm going to read a rather lengthy quote. We'll walk through it together, but I think this is helpful to understand that we don't need more self-esteem. And ultimately, the things that we feel bad about rarely are things we should be feeling bad about or the way we should feel bad about them. Piper says it this way. Could it be that there is a connection between how little earnest pursuit of God there is today in the church and how much we are told to think well of ourselves? That's the society and culture around us. It is a wonderful thing to have been taken possession of by Christ. But it is a thousand times more wonderful when we realize that he has taken possession of a people that he knows will remain sinful. So if we detract from our sinfulness, either pre-cross or post-cross, we detract from his grace. He loves us in spite of us, not because of us. It says this, stand in front of the mirror of the word of God and recognize that you have not arrived yet. The hearty admission of our spiritual imperfections is the starting point for the pursuit of God. Let's pause and clarify this. Many people today would say, well, Pastor Piper, you are utterly out of touch with real people. People do not need a negative appeal to think more about their guilt. The depression of American culture inside and outside the church is an epidemic of guilt and bad feelings about ourselves. Don't tell people that what they need is to develop more dissatisfaction or a holy dissatisfaction about themselves. Do you really think the people in your congregation truly like themselves? He says this, no, I don't. I think that they love themselves and I think that they don't. Self-esteem is not the issue. He says this, I think real humbling guilt is extraordinarily rare. And I think 99% of our bad feelings about ourselves is rooted in pride. For example, suppose you go to a dinner party and you find out when you get there that you're dressed wrong. Then you spill your coffee. Then you don't know which fork to pick up first. Then, you jo- then the joke that you give is a f- failure, complete failure and falls flat. And when you're leaving, you call your hostess by the wrong name. Now how do you feel about yourself when, you're get- when you get home? Um, I've been there before, and you don't feel good about yourself, right? That was just an utter train wreck of an evening. You feel rotten. You hate yourself. You're depressed. You don't want to show your face. You feel like quitting your job. What's the use when you're such a klutz? Then he says this, Now I ask, where does all that low self-image come from? Where do all those depressing, immobilizing, self-denouncing feelings come from? Is the answer, God is offended and his glory is offended by your actions or your glory and your pride are offended by your actions? People who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has injured the glory of God are very, very rare. People who are depressed and immobilized and angry because their behavior has prevented them from having a reputation of being cool and competent are very, very common. So he finally says this, When I plead with you to develop a holy dissatisfaction with your spiritual life, I'm asking for something rare, not common. I'm not asking you to feel worse about your inability to appear cool and intelligent. Let's just all quit trying to do that and we'll feel a lot better. I'm asking you to feel worse that you possess so little of Jesus. The first step in going hard after God is to feel bad about the right things. 
So we must develop a holy dissatisfaction with our spiritual life. I want more of Jesus. Not I want to look cooler. I want more of Jesus. I want more of him. Well, we've answered what is Paul's main mission in life. What's his goal? He's pressing on to Christ-likeness to know Jesus. He puts blinders on, says, I forget what lies behind. I strain towards what lies ahead. That's all I care about. I want Jesus. We talked about the how. We do it by forgetting what lies behind, both good and bad. We do it by straining forward. And not only to the rest of the race that is left to be run, but to Jesus when we're finally home to be with him. But can I answer just in conclusion, why? Why strive? Why run? Why fight? Why struggle? Why not rest? Life's too short. Let me give you four reasons why. Number one, we need to press on in order to know Jesus. And if you are saved, you already have Jesus and you're found in him. And if you are found in Jesus, you will. A necessary consequence of being found in Jesus is wanting more of him. If you are indifferent to holiness, if you're indifferent to striving, if you're indifferent to more of Jesus, then maybe you're not found in Jesus. Number two, to confirm our own justification. Why do we press on to confirm our own justification? The pursuit of Christ is the evidence of genuine faith in Jesus. I think a great question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Is there anything, and probably not is, but what is it in your life that you are pursuing with greater effort, with greater strength, with greater endurance and perseverance, than Jesus himself. What is it in your life that you spend the most amount of energy pursuing? And if it's not Jesus, I think the Apostle Paul would say, that's not the way it should be. You must pursue Jesus and use, as we studied two weeks ago, use everything in this world as a means of pursuing him more. Number three, not only uh, in the why, why do we press on? We press on in order to know Jesus. We press on to confirm our justification. Thirdly, we press on because we're so imperfect. Paul says, I haven't obtained it. I press on. Failing students shouldn't say, I can do it. I'll work harder. If they're failing, at this time, give up, right? (laughs) We're too late in the game. No. Uh, If you're failing, you pursue a tutor, If you're failing, you say, I need help. Help me, please. If you're sick, you pursue a doctor. If you are a sinner struggling in sin, you pursue Jesus. We're so imperfect, we need to pursue the one that can perfect us. And fourthly and finally, we pursue Jesus because Jesus pursued us. We pursue Jesus because Jesus pursued us. That is our hope. He's already clinging to us with an iron grip that will never fail. And every time you think that your grip is loosening, you cling to him and the knowledge that his grip will never fail. And as you understand that grace, you'll pursue him more. Even in your failures, you will pursue him more. So can I ask your soul, are you a coaster? Do you pursue, do you strive At the end of every day, does your head hit the pillow with your soul being wearied over the battle of sin? Or do you just say, I'm indifferent to that. If 
If I somehow waltz into godliness, awesome. If somehow a current of sin and culture can throw me into godliness, awesome. But I'm not pursuing. I'm not swimming upstream. Do you press on or do you coast? He's worth it. Press on to him. Jim Boyce says it this way in conclusion. It is true that discipleship is costly. In fact, it costs a person his all. There are always Christians who think that they can be Christ's disciples piecemeal. They think they can follow him an inch at a time after first assuring themselves that there's no danger and that following him also conforms to their own plans for themselves and their future. But this is not discipleship at all. Discipleship means abandoning your sin, your past, your own conception of yourselves, your plans for your own future, even at times your friends and your family, and following Jesus alone. You may be saying, but isn't that hard to give up the things that I treasure? Well, it is true that it's hard at at times. But it is also true that there is a far greater sense in which we really never give up anything in the service of our Lord. We give up things, but Christ lavishes upon us more. And even the things we surrender are so arranged by God that they work for our spiritual well-being. Father, I pray that as we examine our own hearts and as we think through what it is in our lives that we need to work on to lay aside, to set aside, to throw sin away, to throw encumbrances away. God, I pray even as we sing, you would, your Spirit would work in our hearts to remind us that discipleship is leaving all to follow after Jesus. He is worth it. May we be reminded of his supreme worth this day.